Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Stuff Podcast Network, but not from Headstuff. Welcome to Mother Folklore, podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I am Tara Cochet. And I'm Pather Quivonic, and I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty too, Pather. I actually think um, I might die of thirst. You might die of thirst? That's a terrible, terrible way to go. You know, it's a, it's a terrible thing, but I know um, <laughs> my uh, there was a fellow who, um, who was from my father's part of the world who... Um, was, was seen as being looking very unwell. And it was remarked that, you know, uh, Paddy Paddy Mick, which isn't his real name, so he's not looking very well. And, and a, no, a notable neighbor, Wit, said, well, whenever he dies, I won't be dying of thirst. <laughs> fond of a jar, was he? He was fond of a jar, which is a very <laughs> funny euphemism for, you know, other things. But um, one of the things that's that's been going on through the quarantine is the idea that, um, we haven't been able to go to pubs, but people are, you know, they're having parties, Zoom parties. They're um, having maybe a glass or two of wine at the home. At Ireland, we don't produce any wine in Ireland. We don't have any vineyards. But in this way, it allows us to be noble neutrals in the great wine debates. Like if you ask a Spanish or a French person what their favorite wine is, they're going to talk local the same way that we will defend Tato um, or, or things like that. They will defend those things. But... In Ireland, we are able to actually be look at the, all the wines in the world and say we only like the good ones, and we are in a position to l- judge them with clear eyes. So, in a case of the debate between old world and new world, we get the best of both worlds. Well, as a post-colonial country, we get to see the uh, new world perspective, <laughs> as well as being a member of the European Union and being able to see our Euro brothers and Euro sisters and what they do. Yeah, so basically, we get lots of wine. And we don't we don't really care that much where it comes from, or do we care what we have? We have favorite countries, don't we? I mean, I don't know enough about wine to be honest with you. Well, this thing. Well, I don't I don't know an awful lot about wine. I know uh, you know I, I know a bit, but you and I between us, I mean, I figured that when you and I don't know something, I mean, we know between us, we know lots of things. We bring someone else in who can tell us, and that is why I've asked our very special guest to join us today. Her name is Shamim Devrun. Hi, guys. I'm Shamim. Hi, Shamim. Taras Jach. Jeev, Kunis Tashiv. Yeah. Come on, it's a tart and down already. Tart <laughs> and down. Now we have an episode title. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Oh, yeah, that is, that is a good episode title, isn't it? Because we are going to talk about the world, the world of wine. World of wine. Absolutely. Well, there are two Shemim. worlds of wine, so. the old world and the new world like you were uh, saying earlier there is um, a rough line into how the wine world is divided and that's interesting because and we frequently refer to colonialization in this podcast and our colonialism even Mm -hmm. and yes and maybe wine wine tracks some of these lines in in world history oh absolutely Um, I mean you can follow the entire history of Europe through the region of Champagne especially World War One and World War Two. it's quite fascinating um, how Champagne was used like as a power play um, by the dominant um, force of the time so so like the Germans and, and the French yes so um, you know like when the when the Germans took 
the Champagne region, like it was a it was a strategic move actually, because uh, they wanted control over the production of Champagne and of the consumption of Champagne because it's seen as like a winning thing is to have Champagne, like you are victorious uh, with Champagne. Um, so when they took oh, yeah. it over, they drank loads of it. They'd like the sellers, they depleted loads of them, but the people who produced champagne, they actually dug like into their cellars in the underground and like hid it in the dirt and in the ground. Um, but when you store champagne, you have to store it like cork down rather than flash the way you, sh you store other ones. So it has to be at an angle. So you have to dig really carefully and stuff. So as to prevent things being exploded and, um, so when they were liberated, there was champagne everywhere. You know, the British had champagne, the French had champagne, the Americans had champagne. So it's still this whole like thing of victory, even before the, the marketing to us, where it was like marketed as the drink of celebration. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, an interesting champagne fact I learned recently is that like um, Everywhere around the world, you can't call your fizzy wine champagne. It has to come from the champagne region, except in America, where they're they're quite given to labeling um, their own fizzy plonk champagne. And apparently it's because the USA never ratified the Treaty of Versailles after World War One. Part of the Treaty of Versailles was limits on the use of the word champagne, that anything you label champagne had to come from the champagne region. And then, and the Americans never ratified that, so they can still produce the most awful piss in California and call it champagne. Except they that they can be sued by France. Yeah, is it? Is they, I mean, they, they can't sell it in France? Is that my understanding? Yeah, they can't. They, they couldn't at all. No. Um, but sparkling wine from America is a growing industry at the moment, right? Um, what uh, the thing is about about champagne is that if you put the word champagne on it and it's not French, everyone knows you're marketing to them or, you know, most people, right? If it's not French and it's not champagne, then, then people are like, ah, you're a bollocks, right? <laughs> because they, they, you know what I mean? Like, you're just like, mm, tastes like marketing. Um, so like, and then you lose the actual trust of the consumer. They might buy it in the shop because they haven't read the back of the label. They read the back of the label and you're like, produced in the lovely plains of Napa Valley. Uh, people are like, ah, that wasn't champagne, you lied to me. Do you know? And they won't buy it again. So um, in this era where the entire history of wine is available on the internet. If that's what you want, you shouldn't really be trying to cod your consumer because your consumer is mm -hmm. smarter than you think they are. This is a thing. I think that um, that wine drinkers are a lot more well-informed than they were um, 15 or 20 years ago. And I do remember in the mid-Celtic Tiger, the moment that people, the waiters in bars or barmen stopped saying, do you want red or white? Then they started saying, do you want... Do you want Cabernet Sauvignon? Do you want a Malbec? Do you want... And it, it happened kind of almost overnight. But now people actually do know a little bit more. I would about take umbrage with that because I work for a wine importer that was established in 1805 ah. in Ireland. So um, maybe there was a democratization of wine knowledge with the expansion of the internet because it, it didn't have the traditional barriers that class would have given it. In the past mm -hmm. 20 years, and maybe uh, the more uh, transitional waiter would have had better information. Because in, in essence, uh, in the way Western culture has viewed uh, wait staff, it's like, it's like a transitional job, an interim job. Yes. Now, that's not the case in France, and it's not the case in New York, and it's not the case in a lot of places around the world where it is a valid and viable career choice, and you can get benefits, and you can, you know, really study your craft in, in a way that... You know, the reason we can't get good servers in Ireland is because we don't pay them properly, you know? Um, and we don't tip. Yeah, well, we, we tip 10% on average is our is our reputation, but having worked in service, I would tell you that's not true. <laughs> 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 uh, but in comparison to like maybe uh, other European countries, we tip more. Yeah. Um, yes. I will I will say that for, for Ireland. We're not America, but we're not France either, so... <laughs> <laughs> No shade. We, we, France pays their waiters properly. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't. Uh, we don't tip bar staff uh, because that was always sort of seen as as a trade. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it was the same as you know tipping a, a barman would be like tipping a plumber or an electrician. It'd be kind of it. It wouldn't have been seen as as de rigueur. It wouldn't have been seen as the right thing to do. In fact, it would have been uncouth. 
and mm. you know Irish Irish people in bars for decades would have been laughing at American tourists trying to tip barmen, mm. uh, and then you know wait staff in in drinking establishments is a relatively new thing. It's 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 uh, you know. We're, we're a young country, but that's an even younger concept, the idea of the lounge boy or the lounge girl. So, yeah, we're kind of shit at tipping them. Well, I like, think the, the, need it. the Celtic Tiger was the birth of the gastropub as well, you know, where people started to expand into food in order to make money off the consumer who was spending the day in the pub with their family, you know? Mm. Yeah, well, did the gastropub kind of take the place of the Leeson Street wine bar? Uh, that would have been many people's first introduction to wine in this fair city. That I couldn't tell you uh, because wine bars, um, when I came of age, were sparse and then they were just picking up momentum. Now we doubled the amount of wine bars in the past three years that we had in the Dublin city limits uh, right before COVID. But like the three of them, I'm sure that opened this year are, prob- are probably facing massive um, difficulties. So. Yeah, mm. that's, that's heartbreaking mm. that someone would do something as beautiful as create a wine bar and be hit with this this, this um, pandemic. It's just yeah. I, I just I just feel bad for people. Anyone who thought when new decade, new me, yeah. going to start a business. I mean, obviously, I feel bad for this. I mean, there's other there's other victims too. I'm just saying yeah. that you know we we, we experience these things in a narrative way. But I think wine bars, even when Ireland wasn't a very big wine country, it was it was a it was a license hours um, loophole, almost, I think. Yeah, well, wine licenses are the absolute cheapest licenses that you can get. I don't, don't, I don't know if this is the accurate figure for 2020, uh, but when I was working in a restaurant in 2018, their wine license was €800 Euro for the year, and it was a mm. couple of thousand to include beer. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's... It is That's typically born out of the health regulations in the way that people don't tend to abuse wine in Ireland traditionally in the way they abuse beer. So the responsibility of the trader is, is a bit different, do you know? Like nobody's going to get absolutely ossified on oh, wine no. over, over <laughs> dinner. In theory, in theory, in theory. Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> this is totally different. <laughs> no, I just think it's not en masse as abused. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's cheaper to have a wine license. It's the cheapest yes. license, yeah, to have. And and yet, as you say, like we we we've tripled our our number of wine bars in Dublin in recent years. But it's not really, it's not really a thing compared to continental Europe. You know. Oh, um, of course sitting, not. Sitting down and having a glass of wine of an evening in a well, we wouldn't give cafe environment. We wouldn't give a two hundred mil glass of wine to a fourteen year old with their dinner, but Italians will do that every single day. It's good for the heart. Yeah, you know, like it's and it's no issue and it's no problem. And you know, the rates of alcohol abuse all across Europe are very different to how they are here and in the UK. Um, and it's like theoretically, uh, you know, I, I don't have the, the science to, to back it up available to me right now, but it's often in the way we view alcohol. And a lot of the times in Mediterranean cultures, it's an accompaniment to a dinner and it's the complexity of flavor that is mm. enhancing the meal. It's, and, and, and wine has always originated um with and from food culture as well um always the best wine to drink with a meal is the wine that's that's from the doc near the place that the meal originated you know this is oh so like italian with italian food well more like like nebbiolo with risotto you know so okay wow that's 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 some excellent fine detail but just just very briefly like you touched on the 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 relationship that we have with alcohol compared to others i remember when i was living in austria um there were some workmen over to the house and my landlady she let them in in the morning and it was just uh yeah there's six beers in the fridge there knock yourselves out lads in the same way that if we had work you know if we had tradesmen or tradespeople coming over to the house we'd say there's the kettle there's the tea bags there's the coffee yeah it's kind of like, you might have a beer with your lunch. There you go. I've brought them in for you. Local beers. There you go. Have fun. And it's because, you know, drinking on the job, it's seen as totally not cool over here because we 
We really drink to get drunk as opposed to drink to enjoy it. Yeah, well, like I work in the in the financial district and I can tell you that like we have people who like want to come and they give samples to people to taste so that they'll buy things, yeah. You know, mm. whiskeys, wine, anything like that. And um, lunchtime samples will not make any sales. Lunchtime samples won't really get many participants at all. Like it's just not, it's just not done. Whereas after work mm. ones will. Um, and yet, if you were in Europe, having a 200 mil glass of wine with your lunch is fine. Absolutely fine. And yet on the other end of the spectrum, I worked in an Irish bar in New York and we had people come in like, you know, at 11 o'clock and had four vodkas with lunch and go back to work. So uh, Madison Avenue people. Uh, yeah, well, we were. Yeah, we were in the. um in the financial district there as well, but I, I would also say police officers. <laughs> like a lot of police officers in Irish bars getting having too many drinks at lunch. And, you know, I can't imagine what homicide officers see or anything like that if I'm trying to be understanding. But I found mm. it, like, almost awful that we served these people. Um, but, you know, I needed to, to pay my rent in New York, so... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it do, it doesn't do well to refuse an armed police force as well. If they come in looking for six vodkas before they start their shift, they're strapped. I'm I'm just going to give. Them they the, were always the disguised as three double vodkas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's less, isn't it? <laughs> of course, not the same amount of alcohol if it's in one glass instead of two. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the, the, mm. the, the little things you will believe about, you know, you know drinking in different alcohols in a certain order protects you more than, you know, the grape and grain, you'll fail pain, grain and grape, you'll escape. Oh, the oh, most recent not... one is, um, oh, it has no sulfites, I won't get a hangover. <laughs> yes, oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's very hard. I'm like, I, someone told my wife this, so all you got to do is you know, find wines without sulfites and you'll be laughing. And They're lying. Most wines do. Yeah. They're lying. Um, uh, so sulfur yeah. is naturally produced during the fermentation process, number one. Mm -hmm. So anything that guarantees it's sulfite-free has had chemicals run through it to remove the residual <laughs> sulfites from fermentation. Okay. Number two, uh, cheap wine will give you a worse hangover because of so many extra chemicals that are in it that they do not have to label on the bottle. Wine is one of these foods that you don't have to put in what's in it, right? So that Ooh. people will inject citric acid in order to mimic vibrant acidity and they'll filter it using egg whites and all of these things are not put on the bottle because they don't have to be under European law. Okay, wow. so cheap wine is it often has massive amount more chemicals in it than you realize. So people think when they buy the wine that is low sulfites, that's 20 odd euros, that that's why there's have, they're having less of a reaction to it. But honestly, if you just get something that is like hand farmed and, you know, cared for by the farmer, then it'll have the same sort of... Um, uh, the same sort of effect on you it's because of the excessive amount of chemicals in mass-produced wine it's like anything that's mass-produced you know if you get a one-of-a-kind handmade bowl you're going to look mm -hmm. after it better you're going to enjoy it more you're going to be like i got that one-of-a-kind handmade bowl look at it there on the shelf love it whereas if you get 20 mass-produced ones they'll crack they'll break they'll what and you won't care at all you know i'm feeling very i'm feeling very seen <laughs> like, all my bowls are mass produced ikea specials uh you know i used to have a although i said when i was young I, I did used to have a willow pattern bowl no they're not they're not exactly hand uh handmade artisan items but um it was the only one we had in the house so i did look after that when mm. i was younger that was special but so you're saying go for wine that like really has been shown some love like the kind where they take their socks off to squish the grapes, like that really, really. It doesn't kind of necessarily wine. have to be quite so manually laboured, right? While I will say that there is no way to prove why wine that is foot squished tastes better, because they've done so much science on it, and no one can ever come back with why. But they do know time and time again. If you blind taste people and they say which one is the best, it's always the one with the foot squishers. This is, I think, this is this is like this. Why when they say talk about playing um, classical music to un, unborn children when pregnant, and play classical music, it's not so much the classical music helps; it's the kind of person who will take that attention 
um, is statistically likely to have a lot of other kind of yeah. uh, positive kind of advantages. There is, and you, but you can go too far. There's a massive natural wine movement that is mm. everywhere. Now, I'm a fan of natural wine myself, okay? But okay. it has a much higher flaw uh, percentage than any other wine, okay? Mm-hmm. So if you're buying natural wine, sometimes it is funky and sometimes it's funky, you know? Um mm. That seems like a subtle difference to me. Yeah, it is, and it, and it isn't. So people will be like, "Oh, I don't," and they couldn't tell you why they don't like it. And I'll have a sniff, and I'll be like, "Well, that's because it's got volatile acidity. Like I can smell it, you know." And I'll just mm. and I just put it down. Um, and there's like you know twelve or fourteen like very common wine flaws. And we all have to study them in order to to kind of work in in wine properly. And, you know, without stabilizing agents and and bits and pieces that have been added by science to uh, the wine process, you are more likely to get these wine flaws. It is maybe more authentically Roman, but, you know, Mm. it doesn't necessarily make it better. Just because something is quote unquote natural doesn't make it better, you know? Mm. So that's what you mean by natural is that like basically the unnatural the opposite of natural wine is wine that allows scientific improvements but like on the other end of that spectrum is the the wine that uses too much stuff you know so there is both ends of the spectrum like you can get some very wonderful very well-made natural wines that are have unusual flavor profiles and that have unusual aging techniques and that are from weird countries but you can also get some that are like massively faulty and taste like mouse and you're just like why are people paying for it why are they selling this and they are selling the faulty wine because they have to to break even whereas some did of the you, other did you say did you say taste like mouse oh yeah mouse is a whole thing where, hmm. where do you get that comparison do they feed you mice in order to know what bad wine tastes like okay it's mouse is one of these things that's very difficult to articulate but once you've tasted it you're just like Oh, oh, okay. That's, that's like that's like a wet mouse ran across my tongue. <laughs> okay, I like I I have tried and tried to articulate it to some of my friends. Like we got a mousy wine on Christmas Day because I had bought like a couple of natural wines for my for my Christmas dinner because I was here for it. Um, <laughs> and uh, at the time, I was just like, "Oh, this is so mousy," and everyone just at the table was just like mocking me mercilessly <laughs> they were like have you licked a mouse the way you lick rocks and i was like i mean no but like if you licked these rocks you would know what they tasted like <laughs> god <laughs> uh, i'm sorry you lick rocks so sorry i'm like obsessed with volcanic mineral minerality at the moment like i'm really like trying to drill down which different types of minerals and rocks are in the flavors that i really like in uh, wine that is grown in volcanic soils so i got a yeah. box of rocks uh, posted to me from sicily of all the different kinds of rock that you can find on mount etna um and I got a box of rocks from Mount Vesuvius because these are the only places with online yeah. shipping of mm. volcanic rocks. And I was like tasting the wines from near those areas to try and compare what the different flavors were coming from. It's so not like, unheard taste, of. It's not unusual. It. I swear. In some circles, it probably isn't. But So you're just sipping a glass of wine, lick a bit of basalt. And then, yeah, yes, and yeah. and and no. Like most of the time, for something like that, you spit, right? So you're not getting drunk because the oh, yeah, yeah. the big thing about learning how to taste wine is is thinking. Because anyone can taste. Like everyone has the ability to taste. We can talk about super tasters, and we can talk about people who just can't taste that, and um, mm. uh, and people who have like anosmia or or what have you. But realistically, everyone can taste, and everyone can learn to taste. It's about focus. And it's about being able to drill down. What does that remind me of? What does that taste like? What does that feel like? And like putting a name on the sensation that you already have naturally on your tongue. We all do this at a young age with food anyway. Like this is in built in us with food. We know what potatoes taste like. We know what lemons taste like. We know what apples taste like. We just know it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas we don't learn it maybe with the complex flavors that come from something that is like fermented with alcohol. Uh, fermented like alcohol um so you learn that 
when you're older and it's like learning a language when you're older it is a, a bit more difficult and it requires yeah. more attention to detail but it is wow. easily doable but it is it's essentially a language isn't it because you have to you have to then put that into terms like if you taste something and you want to inform somebody else what it tastes like there's there's like there's a vocabulary in the grammar oh absolutely um and there is like a, a lexicon for it but also there is, it is subjective like people with different cultural backgrounds will sometimes taste different things and then sometimes they'll taste the same thing but they'll have different names for it um so mm. it, but it's also the same with like um how with western food versus mediterranean food versus american food like what we think is too salty isn't necessarily what americans think is too salty which isn't necessarily which may be like unheard of levels of salty for mediterranean people like mm. you know this is something yeah. you tell that people the milk and the water now the tap water always tastes different in other countries but you don't have the vocabulary to explain why yeah like, there I are milk sommeliers as well. There are water sommeliers. Like a lot of the word sommelier has been definitely like co-opted for people who specialize in the tasting of things. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I knew a fellow who couldn't taste anything once he played in a band with my dad. I swear to Christ, the man had no taste buds. <laughs> One time when they were on tour, they were eating in a, in a pub they were playing in later on and he, uh, he drank a bowl of curry sauce and proceeded to put his chicken soup all over his chips and just didn't notice the difference. <laughs> just, I think as a nation... I mean, that horrifies taste, me. Taste, yeah, I think as a nation, we're kind of taste bud lacking, though, because we do have, like, if you ask, maybe it's a generational thing, maybe it's a pre-Celtic tiger thing, but I know I've got relatives, and if you ask them, what was that restaurant like? The guy was great, the portion sizes were huge. Jeez, I wasn't hungry. I would argue what, you, the absolute opposite i think because our food has been historically so plain we are better at tasting things Ooh, because we are more nice. sensitive to it so if you grow up with like a spicier food sort of background sometimes you are desensitized to other flavors and stuff and um, this is also my own personal theory it is not based in any science or fact I haven't been able to find anything to prove it, but I have, this is my hypothesis because um, I have really noticed that people with a plainer uh, tastes in food often are much better at tasting wine. I read about wow. super tasters and how people who can't stand spicy food or can't hack very full flavored things are often super tasters. But I, I wouldn't say I've read enough science to say this as, a, as an absolute fact. So there's a there's there's a chance, and your theory is yet to be proven, but there's a chance that because we grew up on a diet of mashed potatoes and boiled cabbage, that we could be better at tasting things than mm -hmm. Indians or Italians or Chinese people. Absolutely. Wow. I would argue that it is that it warrants further study. I'm I'm willing to put myself forward for tasting all of the wonderful things around the world to see if I'm I'm better at it. And I, this, this brings us on to the idea that the idea, to be able to taste things and to be able to have a, have a good taste memory and to know what goes with what. We mentioned before that that's often wines from a region will go well with the food for that region. We don't produce wine. We have certain, I mean, um, I guess, uh, culinary loyalties. And I'm thinking there are particularly certain, certain, um, you know, junk foods, uh, takeaway foods, uh, <laughs> certain, certain salty snacks. <laughs> <laughs> I am thinking that if I, and I, actually, we did ask you to do this for us, Shamim, that if we were, I was going to get a, a spice bag tonight, what wine should I have with it? Okay, so the thing about um, a spice bag is that there's a lot of flavour in it. And mm. what you want to do is think about, do you want something that will boost the flavour that is in your spice bag? Or do you want something that like, mellows it out or secret option number three do you want something that balances it you know that competes mm. with it evenly so i've come up with a couple of mm. different options for how to really get the most out of your spice bag okay fantastic so um <laughs> it how you take your spice bag is very important because some people um would have it with you know no veg and some people would have it with veg and what and some people would have it with curry sauce and some people would have it without. So if you're the kind of person who has it with curry sauce, 
and with like a, like a normal person. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, normality is relative, but um, <laughs> um, and everything is subjective. So what I would say is that what you want for something that is with curry sauce and with the stir fried veg is something that would be off dry. Okay, so off okay. dry is fancy wine talk for sweet. Okay. Oh. <laughs> um, because this, the off dry sort of level of sweetness isn't massively sweet, but it is sweeter than dry wine. Yeah. And okay. what that will do is it will cut through the fatty sort of like layer that comes from the curry sauce and it will complement the sweetness that comes from, you know, like when you cook capsicum, which is the fancy wine word for peppers, they kind of mm -hmm. get a bit sweeter, especially red peppers. So um, it will cut through uh, the harshness sometimes of maybe a green pepper and it will highlight the sweetness of the red peppers and that will bring it all together. OK, so um, the the sort of like saving version of that is that you can get um, a super value Rosé d'Anjou called uh, Pont du Jour, P-O-N-T, Pont du Jour for only nine euro, which mm. is like, I think it's pretty good value. Rosé d'Anjou. Spice by prices. Perfect. Yes, I'm right. Perfect for this weather as well. Like when it's warm out, you're having a spice bag because you're hungover, but you also kind of want that glass of like Rosé all day for your like brunch vibes. I think it would work mm -hmm. really well. Um, if you wanted to go just like a, a little more upmarket, okay, you could get... Always. <laughs> I mean, I am here for the upmarket. So this is like your spend one. Like if that's your save is the Rosé d'Anjou, your spend would uh, would probably be a Vouvray, okay? And there is um, a Vouvray in M&S for at 12.75. Vouvray is like a place in France that does... Um, sort of like off dry Shannon and that's just like what it specializes in uh, mm. and it's pretty damn good um, now Marks and Spencers always have their own brand of things so it's like the Marks and Spencers Vouvray you know um, classy it, it, I think it's really good you know mm. uh, personally I think it, it kind of brings it out now um, if you're the kind of person who uh, kind of wants to uh be brave and like en enhance the kind of spiciness that comes with the with the five spice mix that spice bags are, oh, yeah. are, are blended with yeah. i would go in the total absolute opposite direction and get a fruity red wine <laughs> okay oh yeah oh yeah yeah so i oh, would yeah. go for a grenache or a garnacha grenache and garnacha are the french and spanish versions of the same mm. grape yeah. Um, or you can go for a Syrah or a Shiraz. Syrah is the French version of Shiraz, which is the Australian bastardization of the word Syrah. Uh, mm. Though some people think it's because it comes from the, um, the city Shiraz in Iran. But there's actually mm. no scientific evidence that any of the Shiraz, Syrah grapes were ever planted in that city of Iran. So that's a little bit like of a... Uh, where etymology reaches science and the and the history of of, of grapes biologically, that is mm. a, a, a that can be tricky. But uh, there are loads of these um, kinds of kinds of uh, kind of wines out there. Um, uh, a Grenache is probably the most common like house red wine in a pub mm. that, that that you would get. There's um, a specific wine if you're looking to spend about twenty three euro called Grenache cubed. Right, Grenache, Grenache, Grenache. It's Grenache from France that is from three different vineyards. It's been blended together. It's twenty three ninety five. It's available from uh, where I work, full disclosure, uh, Mitchell and Son, which you can get mm. online at mitchellandson.com. But it's also available in most independent retailers. So I think it's in Baggett Street Wines and Black Rock Cellars. Um, I don't think it's in O'Brien's at the moment, but I know that they have an entire section donated to, to Grenache as well. So. Mm. So that's the kind of that's the kind of punchy, full flavored. And I'd say it's medium bodied, of, but like okay. it's got definitely it's fruity. It's it's got enough tannin, got enough structure. There's a little sweetness under there. It will enhance every flavor in your spice bag. Nice one. Yeah. Now, if you're looking right, to really right? splurge, okay, and I'm talking, mm. you know, you're just like I want to throw money and really enjoy myself, then you should get a bottle of champagne, <laughs> okay? Because champagne oh, okay. goes with everything. 
absolutely everything. Champagne is the safest wine to ever bring to any event, literally ever. Okay. And uh, why champagne would go really well with your spice bag is because most champagnes are quite high in acidity and the acidity will slice straight through uh, that spiciness and it will like even it out and make it a little bit more bearable on your tongue in the same way like biting a lime does. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. That's... Yeah. Oh my God. Amazing. So, I mean, like if you're going to go cheap and have a spice bag, you might as well splurge and get like a nice bottle of Pomery or something and just go to town. I think Bollinger at the same price point as Pomery is a much better quality champagne personally. Bollinger is one one of those house champagnes. It's one of the few house champagnes, like the big famous houses that's still aged in wood and it's just got more complexity of flavour to it. Uh, At the moment, I think in O'Brien's, it's reduced to 56 and also available from my job for 55. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that's James Bond's favourite champagne, isn't it, Bollinger? I mean, it's the James Bond official champagne. And if you, if Brown Thomas was open, you could go see the James Bond official, like, selection of champagne on their top floor. But, you know. Still COVID nineteen times, so you can look at it online. (laughs) (laughs) Champagne is the same in Irish, although it's spelt S E A I M P E Father I M. Really? Yeah. Champagne. That that could be a name. That could be a. a, There might be a little champagne in in a. I mean, sometimes my friends call me Champagne when they're taking the piss out of me. Because uh, my name is Shamim, so most of my friends call me Sham, and then occasionally when I'm being a whiny bitch, they call me Champagne. Good stuff. Wine, wine people get a very hard. Wine people are like like Gail Gorey, and I think they get a very hard press for actually very little kind of grief that's caused. I mean, when you think about the amount of music snobs or fo- or football snobs who actually just ridicule people for not knowing something, and you compare that to how Irish speakers and wine lovers might casually mention something they're interested in and get get pilloried because it's because the the platonic stereotype of the wine snob or the um hardcore Gelgores out there. I mean, that's absolutely why I call it whining, though. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I catch myself being like, oh, there's a tangent where I followed a grape to a vine and talked about a historical story that ended in science and literally no one cared. So I was just whining again. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's brilliant. You mentioned rosé there. and Rosé all day. Rosie, yeah. <laughs> and this is something that came up recently, uh, recently. I was thinking about it in that, like, a fellow I know had was seen was has, on Facebook having a glass of rosé and got some slaggings from his colleagues, you know, but, you know, drinking a pink wine. And rather than just say, yes, I loved it, or, you know, I just, I'm just mad for rosé, he went in, well, well, actually, you know, Hemingway drank rosé in Spain, and he was his bullfights, and he, had, he felt a need that he had to mask it. He had to masculinize it to defend it. And there's a huge, I mean, gender, gender wars, gender stereotypes do play a point in alcohol preferences. Yeah, I think a lot of that really does come from marketing again. So I would say in the past 20 years, rosé has been predominantly marketed to women, most famously as um, Whispering Angel did. Uh, which was which was quite uh, ingenious in that they skipped absolutely all advertising budget and went straight to the influencers in like the Hamptons um, and gave them all free uh, rosé if they put it on their Instagram and it became this like aspirational thing for ladies to be by the Hamptons with their whispering angel rosé. Um, that really sounds like a euphemism. I mean, I wish. <laughs> uh, I know it's a whole thing and people will pay through the nose for whispering angel that's... Sometimes, like it, okay, I will say it is a high quality rose, but I don't know if it's necessarily worth the price point it is. What it is, in contrast to the roses that we have historically been getting in Ireland, is that um, it's not sweet. So a lot of rose, like rose d'Anjou, would be off dry, which does mean sweet. Um, uh, until the past couple of years, we haven't really been able to find dry rose. And dry rose is what's very trendy now, like Provence rose, which is mm. like Whispering Angel, the Miraval, which is owned by Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, or whoever got it in the divorce, um, <laughs> and uh, things like that. So that's what's trendy now. Now, 
because it's pink and somewhere in the 80s to 90s, pink became associated with femininity and femininity is, of course, negative because we live in a patriarchal society. Um, Rosé was then predominantly marketed to women. But it is like it's thousands of years old. Like if you go back in Provence, um, you can you can see that rosé was made and grown hundreds and thousands of years ago. So yeah. the the idea that it's for women is 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 a complete social construct. Um, yeah, because I mean, like a medium rare steak that's pink in the middle is isn't seen as a, as a girly thing for man to eat. Uh, no, but also you don't market steak as pink in the middle really you market it as brown mm. on the outside and that's a traditionally <laughs> masculine color <laughs> reassuringly brown that's, that's true actually yeah mm. they, 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 they try and avoid that when marketing the idea of, of steak even though the manliest thing is to eat it you know where it's just had the horns pulled out and been walked past a radiator uh, but it's I, I don't know why did your mate have to defend himself though like it's just like, oh, Hemingway drank it. Hemingway was the most insecure man in history. And he was a massive <laughs> wife beater. Yeah, and he and he killed cows to, like, prove his masculinity. Like He also did find, he did find a really good bookshop, though, like uh, Shakespeare and Co. In, in Paris that, you know, I'm fond of. <laughs> okay. So he did one good thing. That's, that's good. He wrote it. I heard he wrote a few books as well. Apparently he was all right at that. Yeah, I mean... He was probably all right. I thought I haven't really read any of his books because I think his point of view is probably a point of view that many people have already had throughout history. So yeah, <laughs> he was not full of surprises, except for the rosé. That's just pleasantly surprising. Well, he specifically drank Tavel rosé, and Tavel rosé is a, is a very famous famous French rosé, which is the complete opposite to the kind of rosé that is quite dominant at the moment. It's very very mm. dark pink, and it's very full bodied. It's- so there you have it, lads. Uh, if you if you want to, to, to drink rosé, but you don't want your weird circle of um, normal people, Sligo friends, to slag you for you know daring to drink it, yes, Tavel's the way to go. Or no. just get new friends. Get new friends. Just I would get always new friends. suggest getting new friends or winning your old friends over. You know, like offering them a glass. Mm. Why are they so scared of drinking a little bit of pink wine? I mean, especially and because pink ro- pink sparkling wine is amazing because most of the times pink sparklers are made out, now, if you're getting the right one, uh, pink sparklers are made out of like 100% Pinot Noir and Pinot Noir is the king of grapes. So. Ooh. Love an Alpino. Love an Alpino Noir. Lovely stuff. We want to move on through our snack experience. Oh, for sure. Uh, and I want to ask you, like, the, probably the king of casual dining uh, and something very associated with the pub and pub snacks is is the cheese and onion crisp, the tato cheese and onion crisp. Or my personal preference is for king, but I'm not going to get into a fight with somebody. If you like tato, you like tato. That's great. Taste is subjective. Well, my fun fact um, about king yeah. crisps is that they're vegan, so they have no cheese. Oh, well, yeah. It's just cheese flavoring. Yeah, it's cheese flavoring that comes from nutritional yeast rather than cheese. Actual cheese, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm all about the veganism. Um, Hippie vegan goodness, this, why in not? This, in, in this context, because it backs up my my favourite choice of crisps. But with a packet of cheese and onion crisps, with the lovely Irish style, I'm not talking about the crap they serve across the water, your Golden Wonders and your Walkers, they're absolute nonsense. Hmm. With with a, a, a tato, either either Nordy tato or free tato, or a packet of King Crisps. I wasn't or, able or, to track down Nordy Tato, and I don't feel comfortable giving like pairing advice for something that I haven't tried haven't, recently. Okay, we respect that. I, I let you in on a big secret. It's more or less the fucking same. <laughs> it's it's a it's a salty cheese and onion crisp that has a much punchier flavour profile than the ones served in Great Britain. That's that's kind of where it's at. Like I find them a little bit sweeter than 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 Tato on the palate, but I mean. None of them can hold a candle to King or, in fact, Ma- Manhattan pub crisps. Actually, fucking... my best friend Fela was all about the Manhattan pub crisps when I told her oh. I was going to be on this. She was like, you have to talk about the Manhattan pub crisps. Yes, she's correct. They are the fucking bomb. They're unbelievable. And you can't, get them, in, you can't get them in, in a regular shop. They're only pub only, are they? Well, they're mostly, mostly pubs. I have you never seen them in, them in the shop. I saw them. Oh, no, I saw them in, in Tesco uh, recently uh, in the big share bag. Uh, which I did not share. Um, but yeah, okay. So listen, lovely, lovely, crunchy, salty, tato, cheese and onions. So I'm going to give you uh, the most Irish pairing mean? ever is your, your like saving pairing. Okay. Your most affordable okay. one is um, 
Sauvignon Blanc. Mm-hmm. Irish people love Savvy B. It like it is their go-to, and you know what? It's because it's dry and it's crisp and it's got great acidity in it, and that will cut right through the greasiness of all the crisps and highlight the cheesiness of them. And that's what you want, right? Mm. So mm. if you want like a saving like level uh, Sauvignon Blanc, um, you can get some really good Loire Valley Sauvignon Blancs in Little or Aldi. Like both of them, if you're looking for a Loire Valley or if you ever see a Sancerre in there, buy that, buy that up. Uh, because most Sancerres start at 23, 24 euros in, in the independent wine trade. And then occasionally uh, Little or Aldi come in and they buy an entire vineyard and they get some really good value Sancerre. All Sancerre <laughs> is Sauvignon Blanc, just full stop. You can't be called Sancerre unless, you're Sauvignon, unless you are Sauvignon Blanc apart from this weird subsect of red Sancerre, but we won't talk about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't, we don't that's like that. for cork dorks like me. That's not for like wine people in general. So Cork dorks? Cork dorks. People who are like nerdy about wine. Ye- love it. Love mm. it. It's fantastic. See, Paddy, you did learn some language today. <laughs> I <words>. did. Cork <laughs> dorks. That's wonderful. Uh, so, so the Savvy B. The Savvy B is your, is your, sa- sorry, that's just me in my, I think that's a shamism rather than like a general term. Cork dork is a general term uh, that, okay. that, that, you know, winos will know. Uh, but uh, Savvy B is, is something that, that I say with the lads. But the, sa- the, sa- the so the Sauvignon Blanc for the cheese and onion. Crisps, Honestly, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's accessible, it's affordable, it's in every pub. It's got more to it than a Pinot Grigio, which will probably not really stand up to the cheesy flavour of uh, Sauvignon Blanc, but will probably go better with a ready salted because ready salted will be overpowered by the sort of grassiness or the 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 green flavours of uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Wow. That's yeah, nice. okay. So but what about something So if you want to go if you real... want to go a bit wild, right? Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. That's what we want. Bit, That's what bit we're wild. Here for. Now, but in an affordable sense. Uh <laughs> I would go <laughs> for a fino sherry. I know, a, I know people are sherry. like a sherry. That's what my granny has sh- after dinner. Uh <laughs> But not a sweet sherry, a dry sherry. And sherry is making a comeback. Aperitivo culture is is here, guys. People are drinking port and tonic. Why would they not be drinking sherry? Okay. So uh, a fino sherry is like a dry, light, fresh sherry, but it's got these sort of nutty flavors that is like quintessentially sherry. Yeah. And it will just the nuts with the cheese will go really well. There's enough acidity in there to balance things out. It will be a flavor explosion that you can't really get in the pub. But you can do it at home in quarantine times. <laughs> and the thing about sherry is it lasts a couple of weeks. Like you don't need to, to drink it the next day the way you do mm. with, your, with your bottle of wine. So if you have sherry in your fridge for two weeks or something, that's fine. And it actually goes really well with a full Irish breakfast. Sherry. Yeah. Sherry goes well with a full Irish breakfast. Mm-hmm. Love it. Okay. It's like a Christmas a nice morning one. thing. If you're going to be like all fancy and jump in to the sea from the 40 foot, you have to have your full Irish breakfast with your sherry. That does sound idyllic. And I know, I know our, our podcast artist, Kirsten, that does enjoy the 40 foot. I think she's, she enjoys the 40 foot on, on, a, on a Stephen's Day morning or a Christmas morning. I, th- I think jumping into the sea in the morning is just about as insane as drinking sherry with breakfast. <laughs> People uh, drink mimosas so at breakfast. To, I'm down with mimosas. That's, it's got orange juice in it. It's one of your five a day. <laughs> but sherry is a, le, has less sugar in it, so it's probably better for you. There you uh, it's not about better for you. If you're eating a full Irish breakfast, you mean, we're not, we're not here to talk about the health options. <gasps> but you just said one I mean, of your got, five a day. You've got that was that was obviously obviously I'm lying. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's it's just my bias to try and allow me to continue drinking champagne in the mornings. Uh, but when you've got a half a dead pig on your plate, I think yeah, okay, fuck it, go for the sherry. Why not? You're already on the road to heart attack town. You might as well temper it off a bit with some sherry. And again, if you want to splurge, guys, 
Champagne. Okay. Champagne. <laughs> Champagne. Champagne with cheese and onion tail. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, but if you get a very specific bone dry, brute nature champagne. So how champagne is made is like it's like fermented, it's like wine, and then it's fermented again a second time in the bottle by adding sugar to it while there is residual yeast. Okay. And mm. that is called the dosage in the fancy way. Okay. And mm. the average do- so, sorry, say say that again. Dosage. Oh, that is, that is just a, I'm, yeah, ASR. That is what that is. That is ASR. I mean, I could say, I I could say dosage. (laughs) It's the dosage. No, no. (laughs) (laughs) That that takes the magic away. Like champagne is supposed to be like tasting the stars, not licking the pavement and Donny Carney. So the average dosage in like Moet or something is like 10 grams, right? Of, of sugar. Mm. When you go for a brute nature, it is no dosage. It is dosage-free. It is completely natural, brute nature. And there is a wonderful one where I'm about to butcher the French name of it, okay? Uh, it's the La Herre Frere, Blanc de Blanc, Brute Nature. And it's in multiple retailers all across the country for about 56 euro, right? Mm. Um, it's, uh, I think Sheridan's do it as well, like the cheesemongers um, and um, and any places that they would supply like all around the country. So a lot of independent retailers, Wine Online, uh, my job again, Mitchell and Son. <laughs> I've overplugged <laughs> them. It's getting too much. I'm sorry. Uh, listen, that's no, all right. They're, they're great. With Mitchell and Son, by the way, um, they do my favorite whiskey of all time. Ah, uh, like Green the, Spot. The, the best. Well, Green Spot aged in uh, Chateau. Louisville uh, Barton. Louisville Barton. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, that is that's just a, predominantly the bartender's favorite. That always yeah. comes out the bartender's favorite. I interviewed a lot of bartenders from uh, Irish distillers for uh, a project mm. for my masters, and like m- the majority of them said that that was their favorite whiskey. So nah, it's it's just it's unreal. Like it's that or Powers John's Lane for like kind of a mid range affordable. You can drink two or three of them in a night, but it's just so tasty. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, there's a much like a much spicier sort of flavor profile. To, to both of those so what you probably like is that like full sort of Christmas spice flavour um, and the viscosity would be would be quite different in a single pot still which both of those are uh, mm. to a single malt so yeah although to be honest with you if you were to ask me like normally my, my choice would be a single malt um, in particular scotch single malts I just have such a, a, I've just got such time for those particular pot stills mm. I just really like the flavour profile of those ones I think they're lovely but anyway, we're, we're not here to talk about no, whiskey. We can I want, do whiskey can another day. <laughs> cool. Yeah, we, we, we should. Can, can, can I put you on the spot, Shamim, mm-hmm. and ask you, if you had some friends over and you actually had a variety of, of salty snacks, like you had your ready salted, you had your cheese and onion, you had your Pringles, the green ones that I pretend sour I don't cream and like, onion. but I just eat them. Sour cream and onion. I pretend I don't like, but I just wolf them down anyway. And of course, the king of snacks, bacon fries. Um <laughs> Is there a sort of a, a catch-all wine that would go well as a bottle to share among friends who have their own snack preferences? That's not champagne, or <laughs> that's not champagne. That's not because cha- champagne goes with everything. Champagne does go with everything, and the more affordable version of champagne is called Cremant. Cremant is any sparkling white wine that's made in France, but outside the um, the region of Champagne. But it's allowed to be called Cremant, yeah. Mm. Uh, which was actually um, a favorite of my my father's that he would he would say that when he was um when he was entertaining French people who weren't from the Champagne area to serve them a Cremant instead to show that you know that he had the confidence and the understanding of wine that they'd actually know that it was good stuff and it's a ballsy move yeah I mean I'd say it paid off yeah he um he would have done a fair bit of work with uh, with France at the time and it was it was his top tip it was his hot top wine tip anyway it was to you know it was a it was a baller move to show french people you knew a little bit about french wine without actually but, but still allowing them to be the expert and tell you why you knew the right why you, you knew it so like a little flex but not like uh look at my six pack <laughs> yeah. it's just a just a subtle flex yeah just holding the bottle showing the guns yeah exactly so you're you're you're, you're not you're not challenging them to a fight you're basically just you know you're you're you're, you're respecting their game too that's why it's the correct amount of flex that's that's how he described it. it like, correct amount of flex. I just I, you know game game no game there game mm. game game recognize game real recognize real. 
Yeah. But my my apart from Cremont, yeah. which would be a go to mm. if I had like 25, 30 euros to spare, which, you know, can be quite a lot. My secret weapon at the moment is a Treshadura uh wine. Oh, yeah. So Treshadura is a grape from uh Galicia, but there's also a, a Portuguese version of it spelled really similarly but pronounced differently. Tre tre no, I can't remember. Uh, Trex, hmm. Trexadora, Trexadora, they're similar. They're both from the Iberian Peninsula. Um, and they just always make everyone go, ooh, wine people, not wine people, laymen, serfs, everyone is like, ooh. <laughs> um, I know a lot of serfs, so that's yeah. uh, that's good. That sounds great. And we Tre are... Trexadora. Trexadora. It starts about 15 euros-ish. Um, and 15 euro is an excellent start point for, for like paying for wine so that the farmer gets a fair wage and the, mm. and the producers and, you know, every, everyone, everyone along, along the stage of production. Cause if you're only paying, uh, like 10 euros for your wine, 50 cents of that is only going to the winemaker and everything else is taxes, charges, bottling, marketing. That's, uh. Yeah, think of think of the farmer. God, uh, we're, we are we are we're running over time. So before we wrap up, um, Shami, we love to ask all our guests. Um, we love to ask all our guests what their favourite Irish word is. I think mine is yoey. Oh yeah, because so nice. I love how it's spelt versus how it sounds. You yeah, know, G H E O B H A I D H, yoey. Yoey, it does sound lovely as well. And you say what it means for our international listeners? Uh, I will go. <laughs> I will guess. I will guess. I will yeah, guess. guess. Sorry, I will guess. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, I know Joey's that. Name. <laughs> <laughs> Rocky is I will go. <laughs> yeah, which is another great word. Another fantastic word. Shamim, I know that like we're really, really tight for time. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I kind of hoped we would discuss, but we got really wrapped up in, in um, spice bags. Um Irish people and wine, like we're not strangers to it. We have a very, very long history of being involved in the wine trade through the the wild geese or the wine geese more specifically. Could you tell us really, really briefly about that concept about like yeah. the people who went abroad and got involved in the wine trade? Absolutely. So after we lost the Battle of the Boyne pretty tragically, uh, a massive amount of like super Catholic people were like, that's it. Can't live in this Protestant country no more. I'm going to mainland Europe. Okay. And like, it was the first like mass exodus really on, on record. Like, you, you know, the way the famine is the most famous one. But after the Battle of the Wind, massive amount of people all went to mainland Europe. And the wine geese is the term that's given to uh, those people and their descendants that ended up working in the wine industry. It comes from the uh, Yeats poem, The Wild Geese, which talks about that mass exodus. And these, and like it became the wine geese. There are 16 chateaus in Bordeaux, including some of the most famous ones like Lynchbage, that trace their origin right the way back to that mass exodus and those Irish people joining the uh, joining the industry. Now, some of them were already wine merchants because wine in Ireland goes back even further. And like I said to you before, um, at one point around the time of Brian Baru, Ireland was actually importing more wine than the entire of the UK. Um, mm. Yeah, so we were always Bri a massive... Brian, yeah, Brian Baru was mad for the sesh. Ah, yeah. <laughs> he loved a, ah, he, he loved a few uh, um, glasses of mead and wine with the lads. Uh, and then yeah. a bottle of Prosecco for brunch. <laughs> uh, he just liked things to be done immediately, you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's a bad uh, joke. Shamim de Bruin, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me, Dark. Our pleasure. Thanks, Hopefully, you'll, you'll come back again and talk Peter. about whiskey soon. I will indeed, absolutely. I have some whiskeys to review this week, but uh, maybe next week. <laughs> Fantastic. So, until the next time, it is a slán from me. Slán agus bánacht. And it's a slán rámsha. Catch you later. Well, Pat, what a brilliant episode. Yeah, absolutely class. I, I tell you what, though, I have a thirst on me. I could drink like air and dry. My belly thinks my throat's been cut. That I'm, mm -hmm. I'm off to get it. I'm off to get a bottle of Cremant. 
Absolutely. That's I've, 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 I've similar things in my mind. But before we go, I want to thank Brian, our long-suffering producer, Kirsten, our long-suffering artist, Headstuff, our long-suffering studio with um, and who else? Who else is long-suffering? Yeah, better. Who? Uh, me. Look, to be fair, but it's all right. You're round. You're welcome. <laughs> Great. <stuff. laughs> Motherfucker comes out every Friday on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Um, if you want to contact the show, you can email us at motherfucklerheadstuff.org. The Motherfucker Twitter account has a different uh, curator every week, and they will talk about issues relating to the show, relating to the Irish language, and other topics of their own specific interest. Do tune in. You can find me at the Irish Four on Twitter. You can find me at the Cav Official, and uh, we'll see you next week. Iowa. It's long to fall. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Voice recorder. Recording.